You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. All right. Good morning, everybody. My name is Joey. I am one of the pastors here, and we are going through a study in the book of Daniel. And I'm really excited about this passage because we get to deal with a character really directly, concentrate our entire time on this man, Nebuchadnezzar. And we have, uh, of course, encountered him before as we walk through this book together. We've rolled our eyes quite a bit at him because he keeps getting things wrong. Remember back in chapter 2, he has this dream, again, that troubles him, and it causes him to move from skeptical to elated to cruel and ruthless and irrational, all because he's just trying to find a solution because he feels like his kingdom is slipping through his hands. So we see him in one scene be completely erratic, and then in chapter 3, he has another dream of this statue which represents his kingdom. He is told that his kingdom is going to end. It's going to be replaced by a kingdom that will never end. And in response to that, what does he do? He builds this entire statue head to foot in gold representing uh, his kingdom, basically communicating that his kingdom will never end. Uh, He rejects what the dream says. And then when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow, he becomes furious and orders the furnace to be seven times hotter. What we've seen thus far in Nebuchadnezzar is a man who is not able to let go of his empire, who cannot imagine life apart from that legacy, that which makes him happy, that, that which makes him feel as though he is significant. Further, though, also, we have seen that Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges God only as one of the gods, only as one of the options in the pantheon of gods. God for Nebuchadnezzar, up to this point, has not been the exclusive, final hope in his life, but just an option when it's convenient. But today, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he finally gets it, doesn't he? Uh, He has this breakthrough where he lets go of his kingdom and he embraces God as his only and final option. So Nebuchadnezzar turns a great corner today. Big shift today for Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what I just said is actually pretty controversial. There's a lot of controversy around where is Nebuchadnezzar like on the spectrum of uh, conversion? Is he really converted? Is he really embracing Yahweh? Is he really now what we would call like a, a, a God-fearer? Is he a Christian, in other words, at this point? And I think he is. Some don't think so. But let me go ahead and just very quickly uh, show you a few things that prove that Nebuchadnezzar here actually has turned the corner. So what we have here, this whole chapter, it's not written by Daniel. Uh, you know, as Meredith is reading it, you notice that this is from his hand. This is from Nebuchadnezzar's hand. This is the edict that he published and sent out into his entire empire to explain where he went these number of years. All of a sudden, he is missing, and now he has to explain to the entire kingdom what happened. And you'll notice that he is not reluctant at all whatsoever with any details that embarrass him. He is totally brutally, completely honest about what happened to him, where he went wrong, and the mistakes he made, and who really saved him, right? So he is not reluctant in the slightest to embarrass himself on a national level, okay? But besides that, it also seems like Nebuchadnezzar has had a change of heart as he recounts the story. What does he do with Belteshazzar? He says, 
That was his name, but now he is Daniel. So he gives Daniel, he restores to Daniel his original name. Not only that, but there's this new and remarkable humility in Nebuchadnezzar. He says things like this, I bless the Most High and praise and honor him who lives forever. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. It seems like there's this new kind of humility, new kind of submission and resignation to the Most High, the King of heaven. And further, I think really conclusively here that shows us that he really has turned the corner is you know, he has these stanzas that he writes, almost like what you read in the book of Psalms, these poetic worship stanzas throughout this chapter. If you were to go to verse 3, the last two lines in that verse is actually a direct quotation from Psalm 145. So it seems like Nebuchadnezzar has been heavily influenced by, you know, what he reads in his Bible. I think he has turned a corner. He has had a breakthrough. The Nebuchadnezzar we knew in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 and chapter 3 is no more. There's been this dramatic shift that has taken place. He's no longer the same man. He's not obsessed with this kingdom, and he has shifted his allegiance to God. God is not just an option, but he is the only option now to worship. So, given the fact that Nebuchadnezzar has had this profound shift, we have to ask ourselves, what happened here? What was necessary in order for Nebuchadnezzar to turn this corner and have this profound spiritual change? We have to ask that question because his ark is our ark. This sequence that he goes through is going to be very typical of the sequence we go through in our lives. Now, here's why I say that. Two reasons. What is the content of this dream that he sees? It's a tree. He sees this massive tree where these beasts are finding shade underneath it. It's, uh, it's reaping fruit for many to eat. All, you know, this dream with this tree. Now, trees are not an uncommon symbol or image in the ancient times. What they represented, and everybody who, who was the original readers would know this, trees represented kings and kingdoms. It's common symbolism, common imagery. In fact, if you go to, if you go to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 31 uses tree imagery to describe the kingdom of Assyria. Ezekiel 17 uses tree imagery to describe Israel and its royal lineage. In Matthew 13, Jesus uses tree imagery to describe the kingdom of heaven. And so what we have here is the idea of kings and kingdoms, of humanity, of empires, of things that we all participate in, but it gets even more personal, even more individualistic, not just corporate, but to you and me, because... There's a small little phrase that pops up twice in the content of this dream. It says that this tree, it reaches to the top of the heavens. That phrase, the top of the heavens, is also a direct quotation from Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11 is the story of how all humanity at that time gathers in this plain called Shinar to build this tower that will breach the heavens. What they're doing there is communicating to God that we can build our own empire. We can make ourselves happy. We can find our own identity. We can make ourselves significant apart from you. That's what happened at the Tower of Babel, and it becomes this... Um, this symbol that the Bible uses to describe our impulse, 
our life. It describes humanity as a whole, each one of us as a person. We all naturally seek to establish our own kingdom. So what I'm saying is what Nebuchadnezzar experiences here, what he is warned of, what he learned, this sequence we see here is the sequence for all of our lives. The original readers would get that. They would see this imagery and know that it also corresponds to them. It has something to do with them. So what happened to him? Very important question because it's also what's going to happen to us. The spiritual breakthrough that that happens here. You can call whatever you want, recovery, redemption, sanctification, conversion. This spiritual journey that Nebuchadnezzar goes on, this breakthrough that happens to him is what is going to be typical for you and I. And so, as we go through this, there's six sequences that he goes through that's going to be very typical for us. But listen, as we go through them, Your job today is to be thoughtful and to be introspective and think to yourself, where am I at on this? Is this happening? Is this common for me? Because this is going to give you the confidence to persevere. This is going to give you the self-awareness to know that God is at work in my life. He's doing something. And this is hard. The sequence is hard. It's destabilizing. It hurts. But if you have the awareness to know that this is what happens to you, then you can have the self-awareness to know that God is walking with you through this, that there's a purpose, there is a point to this sequence that is challenging. So I hope today encourages you. I hope today challenges you. I hope today comforts you. Wherever you're at in this journey, Nebuchadnezzar's journey is all of our journey, okay? So we have six sequences. First, we start with self-deceit, this illusion that we live in, and then God disrupts it, which is great. That doesn't always work, though. Typically, we don't respond to that, and so we forget God. And then we experience self-destruction. We experience God's humbling of us until finally, at last, we have a breakthrough, and at last we worship. We worship appropriately. We worship rightly. We worship the one who's only worthy of worship. That's our journey ahead of us. We have a lot to cover today. I'm going to go and pray, and then we're going to jump into it and see what's typical for us. Father, we come to you today, and we ask that you please be with us, that you give us the awareness to know where we're at so that we can follow you through this and trust you through this and know that even when we can't see what's ahead of us, you do know, Lord and you are a trustworthy leader. And so, God, we ask that you be with us, teach us, and let us walk out here, Lord, more wise, more mature, more committed to you. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so where does Nebuchadnezzar start? Because that's where we all start. He starts in self-deceit, this illusion that he has created and bought into. Look at verse 4, it says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Everything Nebuchadnezzar, his plans, they're all working. His, his empire, it's a success. It's flourishing. His relationships are good. Everything is good in his life. Even the content of the dream says this. Remember, the dream says that this tree is reaching the top of the heavens. The beasts are coming underneath it. It's fruitful. It's, it's bearing fruit. It's abundant. It's vibrant. This is Nebuchadnezzar's life. And look, There is nothing wrong with success in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with having a stable life. There's nothing wrong with our plans working out. That's what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar. There's no mistakes in and of those things themselves. Nothing wrong with them themselves. But here's where it gets dark. Here's where the problem occurs. It's this. When we begin to think that the success of our life 
that the stability of our life, that the prospering and all things working out, the mistake that we make is we think that that's because of us, that we did that, that that's credited to us. The mistake we make is that we think that we are essential for our lives working out. That's one mistake that Nebuchadnezzar is making. He thinks that this all is all because of him. But also, here's what else happens alongside that. And I'm going to give these two because these are going to be a thread throughout this entire sermon. We think, we make the mistake of thinking that we are essential to our life working out. But also, we make good things ultimate things. We make relationships, God. We make money, God. We make success, God. We make good things which God gives us which are not wrong in and of themselves, ultimate things. And that's the mistake that Nebuchadnezzar is making. He thinks he's essential, and he's made good things, ultimate things. And when those two things collide, when we think that we're essential and we make good things, ultimate things, there is a demand we feel, a demand we feel to be in control of our lives. So we remain essential, so we keep that ultimate thing. And what that is going to produce in your life is you will turn a blind eye. You will take shortcuts. You will compromise in certain places because uh, it costs you if, if you release those things. And so, to keep those things and remain in control and keep the good things, ultimate things, you will look the other way and make compromises, but you know what's going to happen. There's going to be collateral. It's going to be other people who suffer. You're going to step on people. You're going to manipulate people. You're going to disadvantage people. You're going to ignore people. And that's exactly what happens to Nebuchadnezzar because he believes this lie, this illusion that he's in control of his life and he can keep good things as ultimate things. Down in verse 27, Daniel says this after he gives the interpretation, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness in your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. See, to keep up the illusion, to keep up the illusion that we are essential to our lives working out so we can be happy, we will take shortcuts, we will look the other way, we will make decisions that don't cost us, but certainly cost other people. That's what's happening in his empire. That's what's happening in Nebuchadnezzar's life. So we deceive ourselves into believing that we're essential so we can keep those good things as ultimate things because we think it's going to make us happy, period. We think that's going to make us happy. So here's what God is going to do. God is going to frustrate the whole thing. He's going to, he's going to destabilize the whole thing. And it's not because he's mean. And it's not because he enjoys toying with you. That's not why he does it. It's because he loves you. Because he wants something better for you. He wants to release you from this cage, this lie that you have built for yourself, that you are in control of your life. He loves you and he loves others. He wants to release you from hurting other people to keep up the illusion. So God is going to disrupt. He's going to disrupt this whole illusion, this self-deceit. Look at verses 14 through 16. This watcher, this angel, proclaims aloud and says, Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beast flee, the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its root in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the, in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's. And let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. 
So this is an ominous dream. It's foreboding that there is an end in sight for Nebuchadnezzar, his whole kingdom, his whole empire, everything he's invested his life in and and thinks he has been essential to is going to crumble. It's going to be taken away from him. It's going to be cut down at the root. It's ominous and foreboding. It's alarming. But look, this is a warning. I want to just make sure I I, I say this. This doesn't have to happen. Remember, I just said, Daniel says, if you repent, if you begin practicing righteousness, if you begin practicing mercy, perhaps there may be, may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Perhaps this, this cutting down the root thing does not have to happen if you make a change. This doesn't have to happen. And so what God is doing here is he's pulling back the curtain on Nebuchadnezzar's life and showing him and showing everybody else that he is not as powerful as he thinks he is. He is not the reason for his success. He is not as essential as he thinks he is. God is disrupting the illusion he is living in. And in fact, this is made completely clear in verses 17 and 25. I'll just read generally what those two verses say. There's a purpose given for this uh, humbling, this cutting down the root that's going to happen. Here's the purpose. It's so that he and others may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's the reason for this cutting down. To tell Nebuchadnezzar and the whole watching world that he is not essential that he is not in control, and that good things, when made ultimate things, become a a cage, become a monster. They destroy. So look, (laughs) it's foreboding. It's ominous. It's dreary. It's heavy. But this is a grace. This is a grace. God is extending to Nebuchadnezzar an early exit in this process, saving him a lot of heartache, saving him a lot of headache, saving him a lot of self-destruction and in the process. This is, a, this is a grace. This warning is a grace. And so look, here, here's what I want to say to you. When we sense, when we sense based either something we hear here in a sermon, we're reading in the Word, in a message we hear, whatever, in a book we're reading, whatever it may be, when we sense a warning that if we keep on going down the track that we're on, it's going to get messy, it's going to be painful, that is God in His grace subtly, quietly disrupting the illusion. He is trying to, early on in the process, release you from this manufactured life, this illusion that you're in control. This is a grace that he is giving to you. So listen, I know this is hard to hear, but, you know, Hebrews chapter 4 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you feel that warning, sense that warning that I need to repent, something's got to change, or... I'm going down this path of destruction. This is a grace of God, and my encouragement to you is welcome the disruption. Embrace the disruption. Don't ignore it. Don't just think there's going to be a better day for it. Don't think that I'm going to get this on my system now, and I'll I'll have time for Jesus later. That's not necessarily how it's going to go. There's an early exit, and that's what he's offering to Nebuchadnezzar, and typically that's what is being offered to us. And so if you respond then your self-deceit, it won't transform into this monster that's going to eat you alive. And God's disruption is going to transform into a comfort for you. So, God disrupts this self-deceit. But, what's typical of Nebuchadnezzar 
is typical for us. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He forgets. You know, this disruption, it's a scare. It's just a momentary scare, but eventually uh, he drifts back into the lie. He drifts back into the illusion that he is essential for his life and that good things can be ultimate things and that's okay. He forgets Babylon. You know, Babylon was one of the greatest empires we've ever known. It uh, had 40-foot walls surrounding it. It had grand temples scattered throughout the whole entire empire. It had the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world. This is the empire that Nebuchadnezzar has built during his reign. This is his legacy. And so look what he says in 28 and thir- through 30. Uh, it says this, at the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof and of, of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is, this, is, this, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Did you, did you catch what he's saying there? He's saying that great Babylon was built by him. He's essential. It's because he takes credit. It's because of him. And why? What's the purpose of, of, of this? For his royal residence and for the glory of his majesty. It's to keep those good things as ultimate things. This man thinks he is the reason for his success, and his success has become the ultimate thing. The disruption, it has not worked. He slid back into his self-deceit, which has morphed into self-centeredness and self-aggrandizement. Now, he forgets God. Before you roll your eyes at Nebuchadnezzar, like, oh my gosh, what, what is it going to take? How much do you have to go through, man, for you to actually just wake up and come to your senses and, and turn a corner here? Before you roll your eyes at Nebuchadnezzar, think about this for a second. It takes so much in our lives, each and every one of our lives, it takes so much, um, something profound, something tremendous, some movement, you know, that's obviously from God in our lives to just give us incremental trust in Him, an incremental growth of trust in Him. It takes so much, it takes so much for us to, to trust God, doesn't it? It takes so very, very very little for us to slide back into not trusting Him. It takes so, so very little for us to be tempted to just try to take control back of our lives. It takes such great efforts for us to trust. It takes so very little for us to forget. It just takes a week. It just takes a little temptation. It just takes a compliment or praise and here and there, and all of a sudden we're taking credit for it. So before you roll your eyes at Nebuchadnezzar, you have to understand that this is all of us. This is our lived experience. It takes great efforts to cause us to turn a corner. It takes very little efforts to cause us to drift back to where we just were. Look, there's a reason why. God commands Israel to tell the story of the Exodus at every single meal and pass that story on to your children. There's a reason why God you know, institutes these celebrations and festivals in Israel's calendar, their annual calendar throughout the year. It's because He wants to remind them of who He is. He wants to remind them of what He's done because we have very short memories. We easily forget God. This is exactly what Jesus teaches in Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the sower. Let me read this to you. This is, this is all of us. It says this, 
Other seed, the seed of the word, the seed of the gospel, the truth of God. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. See, it's very possible. Listen to me, don't, don't miss this. It's very possible to turn to God, be on Team Jesus, be a big fan because it feels good at that time. It's very possible to do all of that because you want to avoid the consequences of your sin rather than just dealing with your sin. Then truly repenting, you just want to avoid some practical consequences. See, it's, there's a kind of human heart that exists where the seed of the word, who God is and his truth, goes only so deep, only so superficially. It's circumstantial, it's emotional, it's for a time, but when the temptation comes, when trials comes, whatever may come, it's scorched, it withers, it dies, it goes away because it did not penetrate very deeply. It wasn't for the right reasons. This, this can be us. This is typical of all of us to, to forget God, to hear the disruption Maybe you'd respond to the disruption for a time, but to eventually, you know, eventually it dissipates and we fall back into the same line of thinking that we were originally in this illusion, the self-deceit that we're essential and that good things can be ultimate things and it'll be okay. So here's what's going to happen. God moves from disrupting to now permitting permitting you to have your way. God will now lift the guardrails and allow us to have our way. And the result of self-deceit and forgetting God, we're going to see through Nebuchadnezzar is self-destruction. Look at 31 through 33. Here's how the story goes. Nebuchadnezzar just, you know, took credit for everything, praised his kingdom. And he says this, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. He goes insane. He becomes a beast of the field. Now, you might say, I, I titled this part self-destruction, and you might say, hold on, this looks like God destruction, like God does this. God's the one who, who pronounces this. God's the one who initiates it. God's the one who permits it. God's the one who makes it so. This looks like God destruction, not self-destruction. And you're partly right. Of course, God does initiate it. Of course, God does permit it. He lifts the guardrails. He allows, he allows this to occur. But the original readers who know their Bible, who know their Old Testament, they wouldn't see it so simply. They wouldn't see it so basically. They would understand something that we oftentimes miss, which is this, that what a person worships, what a person hopes in, what a person trusts in is going to have a transformative effect on you. It's going to change you. With God, it's going to change you, obviously for the better, make you more like him. But with anything else that is not God, it is going to change you for the worse. It will desensitize you. It will dehumanize you. 
That's what the original readers know, that anything you hope in, trust in, love, worship, invest yourself in, it's going to have a direct change, a direct influence on you. And so, just two verses to prove this. Psalm 115, look at this, it's interesting. It says, their idols, which we could say Nebuchadnezzar idolized his kingdom, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears do not hear, noses do not smell. They're not living, they're dead. They have hands that do not feel, feet do not walk, they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. What you trust, what you hope in, what you love, what you worship will have an effect on you. You will become like the thing that you trust in. And what does Nebuchadnezzar trust in? What does he put his hope in? This beastly empire. This inhumane empire. And for it, what has happened to him? He has become beastly. He has lost his humanity. He has become desensitized. Um, this, is, this is obvious uh, in everyday life. We see this all around us. You don't even have to be a Christian to understand this point that what you hope in and trust in is going to change who you are. David Foster Wallace is a secular uh, writer. Uh, he died a while ago, but he says this, and he's, you know, he's not a Christian, but this, he's just being brutally honest about what he observes in the world. And I've read this quote before. It hits the nail on the head. He says this, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are, you, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will, need ever, you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. See, whatever good thing that you make into an ultimate thing is going to destroy you. You think that you're in control of your life. You think that you are uh, managing everything to make yourself happy, to keep that thing there. But really, that ultimate thing is controlling you. It's determining who you are. It's determining who you become. And we take this ultimate thing that we're idolizing and hoping in and trusting in. We think it's like this nice, docile, cute kitten. But really, the truth is, is it's like a coiled snake ready to bite. So examine your life for a moment, really, truly examine your life for a moment and, and see if this is really you, if this resonates with you. You know what you trust in, what you hope in, what you worship based upon what creates stress and what creates anxiety and what creates sadness and what creates depression. Those sources of trust those things you're hoping in, whether it be a relationship or success or security or dreams being fulfilled, they are literally transforming you. And the end result is you're going to be a unhappy, bitter, resentful, cruel, cynical, curmudgeon person. 
That's what happens when we put our hope in anything else but God. It has that deeply transformative effect on us. Literally what happens to Nebuchadnezzar losing his humanity, becoming desensitized, becoming consumed, is what is going to happen to us as we keep going down this road of making good things, ultimate things, and believing that we are essential to our lives working out. In other words... Sin, sin and idolatry is its own punishment that God has endorsed and that God has permitted. God initiates it, but it's of our own making. But let me tell you this again. Even this self-destruction is a grace. It is. Because God's up to something here. God has a purpose for this fallout that's occurring. Because now when everything falls apart, all you have left is God. And now you might be humble enough to take him up. That's what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. God humbles him. Look at verse 34. I keep on reading. It says, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. God broke him at last. He, he relents. He gives in. He gives up. He lifts his eyes to heaven. So how did God break him? How does God break us? Let me tell you, here's what it is. God lets us dive to the very bottom of that sin, dive to the very bottom of that well, and come up empty, and come up with nothing. God lets that sin and idolatry run its course. He lets us exhaust it to its fullest degree, Till finally we are persuaded in our own lived experience that it isn't all it was cracked up to be. It wasn't actually worth it. It wasn't ever going to make us happy. To go back there is inferior. To go back there is settling. God lets us exhaust our sin and our idolatry so that finally we will have a change of heart and not desire it anymore. No longer want it. No longer love it. And so let me tell you what's happening underneath the surface. This transformation, this, you know, redemption, this recovery that Nebuchadnezzar literally just undergoes here, there's sort of a DNA to it. There's this process to it. I want to uncover it for you so you know what it's going to take for you. So you know, uh, so you can have some self-awareness. It says in verse 16, all the way back up in verse 16, the angel says that Nebuchadnezzar's mind, his mind will be changed from a beast's to a man. Now that word for mind, okay, it's a dense word. It's a complex word. We think logic, we think rationale, but in the original language, it doesn't mean that. Uh, here's what one commentator says. The word for mind is labab. It's a, it means heart. It literally means heart. It's a term that in scripture refers to inner self as the seat of moral reflection, choice of the will, a pattern of behavior. It includes not only the mental processes, but also the feelings, affections, and emotions, along with all the motivational factors leading to decisions and responses to life situation. See, the transformative effect, I'm talking that, that sin and idolatry do to us, it's, it's not, it doesn't start logical. It's not like those things change the way they think. None of us make decisions merely or even primarily by logic and ration, rationale. It's not the case. We make decisions by what we feel. 
by what we gut, by, by what we desire. We are desire-oriented creatures. So the transformation that sin and idolatry produce, it's not primarily bad logic. It's poor affections. It's disordered loves. It's not a logical thing. It's a desire thing. And our desires are the primary determination of what we do. So when our desires are off, here's what happens. When our desires are all out of whack, when we want the wrong things and love the wrong things and love good things too much, when our desires are out of whack, we are then going to find reasons and use our intellect to justify getting what we want. See, we're smart enough to find reasons to go forward with sin and idolatry and then dumb enough to go through with it. That's how it works. We want something, so then we come up with a reason to go out and get it. We're not logical creatures. We are affection-based, desire-based creatures. And so what does God have to do with Nebuchadnezzar? He has to change his will, change his desires by letting him exhaust sin and idolatry for all it is, realize it's silly, realize it's nothing, so that then he can be released from those poor desires, desire the right thing, and then think the right thing believe the right thing. That's what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. That's why he experiences this breakthrough, because God first changes his heart so that then he can think and believe the right things. It's like the unraveling that sin and idolatry do to us. God, through self-destruction, through this humbling process, he puts back together the humanity we lost. He restores to us what sin and idolatry have taken from us. And so now that Nebuchadnezzar desires the right thing, now that his will has been broken, and now that he has come back to his senses and his mind is restored, now, I'm going to try, Lord, help me explain this, now he's no longer in the illusion. He's no longer in the fantasy world, the fantasy life he's created. Now, he actually lives according to reality. And what is the reality? He is not essential. That good things can't be ultimate things. That God is essential and that God is ultimate. But what did it take for Nebuchadnezzar to phase out of that self-deceit into real life, real reality? It took self-destruction. It took humiliation. It took his will to be broken so his mind can be changed. So now what he feels and thinks corresponds to reality. So now he can be happy, but happy according to the right things. Safely happy. Not happy in a way that's going to eventually eat him alive, but happy in a way that's going to give him what God wills for him. Happiness in him. And now what? Now what, after all this process, now that his heart's changed, his mind's changed, he can now worship. Now that he's living in reality, living in the truth, he can at last worship. Verse 34 keeps on going and it says this, Nebuchadnezzar says, And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion. Here's the reality, here's the truth. His dominion, not mine, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? See, what is true in his heart and in his mind is now true to reality. He's no longer living in the illusion, and he is the happier for it. His humanity is restored. 
He can be happy, but it's no longer based on control and being essential and keeping good things, ultimate things. He can be happy because he rightly sees God and rightly fellowships with God and rightly has relationship with God. And so what happens? How's the story continue? Everything is restored to him. You know, his cabinet comes out, they find him, they restore him to the throne, and his kingdom prospers. It's more successful than it ever, ever has been. But I want you to notice something as I read that account. Notice how Nebuchadnezzar describes his recovery, how he describes his uh, reinstitution to the empire, to the throne. It's really interesting. Verse 36 says this, At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom... My majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now it's very quick and subtle. You might have missed it, but he writes passively. He says, the glory of my kingdom was added to me. I didn't do it. I didn't take it and keep it. I didn't uh, perform. I didn't work and take that glory for myself. It was given to me. God did it. I'm not in control. I'm not essential to my life working out. He says that they sought me and he was, a, he was established. He didn't establish himself. He didn't take back what is his. God did it. See, he writes passively as, if, as in God does it all. God is essential. God is in control. God is ultimate. And that is true, and that is the reality. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's no longer taking credit. He's no longer essential to his life working out. He is, God is now the center of his life that makes things happen and keeps things going. And now he is unburdened from keeping up this illusion, and and others are no longer going to suffer the collateral of his self-deceit. He gives God the credit and sees everything as a gift, and for it, he responds in praise. See, here's why, Nebuchadnezzar, why we can finally be happy at the end of this process, because when we think we're essential to make good things, ultimate things, all the things in our life, the good things, they obscure the giver. When we make those things the focal point, We can no longer see God for who he is, but when those things are put in their proper place, when we are put in our proper place, now all the things in our life can point us to him, to the giver. And now we have fellowship with him. Now we are reconciled with him. Nebuchadnezzar has found a happiness that is not earned, but given. This is the predictable pattern for spiritual freedom. We will start with deceit, self-deceit, some disruption, might slide back and forget God, so he will give us over to those things. We will experience self-destruction. We will be humbled so our desires change and our minds change, so we are now at last set free to worship the right things, only God himself. It can be a long process, and I I understand that everything I'm saying right now, it's a lot to take in. It's hard this is not comforting and necessary. It's not tender and warm and fuzzy. I know this is really, this is raw, but let me encourage you with something. I want to finish with one last point. We have more reason for confidence that we're going we're gonna to go through this process and it's going to work and it's going to be worthwhile. We have more reason for confidence than even Nebuchadnezzar had, who heard from angels and who had visions. And we have a better reason for confidence than even he did, that it's all worthwhile here's what it is. There's one little part in here that I didn't mention so far. I didn't didn't touch on, and it's the stump. 
In the dream, it says that this tree is going to be cut down to the stump. And of course, in the dream, it, it does refer to Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, that you know, there's going to be a kingdom restored to him, his kingdom. But what do we know about the story? By the, by the time Nebuchadnezzar has the shift, and by the time he changes, he's no longer concerned about his kingdom. In fact, his allegiance is no longer to his empire. His allegiance is now to God's empire. And so we, I think it's safe to say this stump, what we know, what we know, it's not his kingdom. What is he returning to? It's not his kingdom. It's God's kingdom. And for all of us who know the full extent of history, for all of us who know what the whole counsel of God's word says, we know what this stump, who this stump really refers to. In uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it says this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's King David's father, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. See, this is the promise that there will be a king and a kingdom that will never end, that will be established and will never, ever end. The true king, the true kingdom, the only one that will last, the only one worth joining ranks with. So Jesus is a stump. Jesus is our reason for confidence that there's going to be something waiting for us when this is all over. When we get through this process and recover and we are back on our feet, he's there with us. It's him that we're united to. It's his kingdom that we're being integrated into deeper and deeper. But here's the question I want to ask. What about Jesus gives us reason for confidence? What about Jesus gives us power over sin and power over idolatry to turn from those things, to walk forward in this process of freedom and proper worship? What about the stump? What about Jesus gives us power over this whole process? Let me conclude by reading Isaiah 53. 52 and 53, because Isaiah 52 and 53 tells us exactly why Jesus is our hope in this. It says this in verse 52, 13 and on. It says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so he shall sprinkle many nations. It seems like what Isaiah is anticipating here is a human who is going to be exalted, but not in a glorious way, in a positive way, but in a way that he's marred and dehumanized and shamed and dishonored. And if you sprinkle many nations that refers to blood imagery, this, isn't, this is a dark scene. This is an ominous scene. And he keeps on reading and says, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is his ability to deliver, his ability to recover, his ability to save. Who is the arm of the Lord? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The word for root there is the same word in Daniel chapter 4 for the root that's left over after the tree is cut down. So the question is, who will have the power to lead us out of self, self-deceit self through disruption, 
through this forgetting of God and through this self-destruction into humility and into greater worship, so much so that we are increasingly set free from sin and idolatry. Who will take us by the hand and lead us through that? Only the one who left the comfort of heaven and experienced the disruption and destruction of God's wrath on the cross, along with its humiliation, and who was forgotten by God, yet rose in glory and vindicated as worthy of worship. What I'm trying to say is this, everything we keep, you know, our comforts, our kingdom, our glory, our control, our security, Jesus let go of. He released. And everything that our sin and our idolatry earned for us, this destruction and humiliation Jesus absorbed for us. He took what our sin and idolatry earned for us on Himself so we can have what He has, which is His righteousness, His kingdom, His glory. Everything offered by God here in Daniel chapter 4 to Nebuchadnezzar, this this sequence, this process that releases us from a life that is a lie, a prison we built for ourselves, everything that Nebuchadnezzar experiences here, We have certainty, we have a guarantee that it is for us because the stump that Nebuchadnezzar saw, we have joined. We have been grafted into. We are his, we are in his kingdom now. And so my last question is this. Where are you at in this sequence? Where are you at? Are you at the part where you're still living a lie? Where you're buying into this illusion that you're in control, that you're essential, that it's okay to have good things, ultimate things, and put God in the back burner. Are you still there or are you farther along? Wherever you're at, here's what I'll tell you. Partner with God in what He is doing. Trust God's purpose in this sequence. He loves you. And he is trying to pull you out of lies and pull you out of idolatry and pull you out of sin and release you into a life that is filled with actual happiness because of true worship. So where are you at? Where are you at? I'll leave you with that question for you to think about and pray about, okay? Let's go ahead and pray together. God, we come to you and we ask that you would help us, Lord, to respond to you and what you're doing in our life, that we would wake up and come to our senses, that you would change our will so that our minds can be changed so we stop living a lie and conform our lives to the true reality, which is that you are king, you are ultimate, and you are in control. God, I pray that you would teach us, that you'd persuade us in our own lived experience to release ourselves from needing to be in control and to cling to you who is in control. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.